All right, everyone, welcome back. This is vlogcast number 45. It's your man's chin I am, also known as Christian Soto. My man, Matt Big Beg, Big Bet Alpha Reg, streamer galore, Wii U apprentice, Matt Berkey. How are you, man? How does it feel to be a grown adult who stole a catchphrase from a couple of uh stole it's a it's called Team Wheel. We have a group chat. Mm. Did you start that group chat? No, but I was heavily invited on the group chat. Ah, ah, I see. It's like it's like when you get tapped on the shoulder, tapped on the right shoulder to like join a secret society. Mm. You don't have to start the secret society, but once you're in the secret society, you're part of the secret society. Right, so you're not the cult leader, you're just a member. I don't know. I mean, if you're part, if you're part of like Skull and Bones, then you're part of Skull and Bones. It doesn't matter who started Skull and Bones; those people are probably dead. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it, why do you want to start a cult? I don't. I don't. I'm curious like do. about your Wii U cult. I mean, it's it, it's something that reminds me of my roots, like back in Jersey, mm. like holding it down at the underground games, making sure everybody's in check. I gotta tell you, speaking in, as a representative of our group chat, mm. we all fucking hate it. Okay. <laughs> so it doesn't translate groups it's a different cult well it also more specifically it's not I, I don't care when you say it when you mm. say it it's fine because there's a certain inflection to it and like you know it, it demonstrates excitement yeah when you type it out you don't like the type i don't like the type. yeah okay all right fine. i read it as we you uh, it's boring for you it's weird it's, it's uh, a, well it's not right. a word i mean it could uh, what does it mean i mean if berkey if Can we Matt Berkey says it's not a word, then it's definitely not Can a word. Can we get the dictionary of chin in? I mean, I don't know, man. It's all right. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway. Don't just try to steal the show, okay? I got the topics. Oh, okay. okay? okay. Sure. This wasn't, wasn't in the show. Anyway. <laughs> so you started streaming. I mean, we started streaming, but you basically uh, have to. I'd love for you to get in there, man. It's hard, man. Uh, let, let's let's talk about the stream, the stream, uh, the whole stream process first of all it's not as easy as people think it there's a lot that goes into the getting it going so to speak like there's a lot of buttons you have to hit there's there's a lot of buttons you have to hit the music has to be a certain way a certain you know if your mic is not on so effectively walk me through both the decision to start streaming but also the back end stuff because i feel like you know there's a lot of streamers out there but there's also people that may be interested in like how it even all works because you know andre like hooked us up with like his setup he's done infinite streams with jay carver so obviously we had a a little bit of an inside track there uh but yeah i I mean i i think you're actually a pretty good streamer which is you know you're you use less big words on stream you sound so surprised well because like people that know you Hmm. wouldn't take you as like hyped on stream like a people person maybe like, uh maybe you just don't know me that well no i don't think that's it man that, so <laughs> the, nobody fucking knows you then because the people that know you are like okay where's berkey all right he's probably either in the sauna by himself on the couch by himself with the computer in his room you know work uh, berkey well i knew i don't you- think my high school friends would like tune in and be surprised by what they see. All right. Well, talk to me, man. Talk to me. Talk. <laughs> is this, do you feel like the stream gives you a place to be uh, expressive of like the other person that you are? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Twitter, you get 280 characters and mm. you probably have a purpose behind. Mm. Uh, like, me specifically, I don't tweet for the sake of tweeting. Yeah. You're never going to see a, uh, just had the best Mexican food of my life kind of tweet come out. Because, like... Maybe that's what the people want from you. Maybe, though. but I don't care. <laughs> like, if that's what they want, I'm sorry. I'm not going to deliver. Mm. Uh, that, to me, is just, like, both a waste of my energy and also, like, social signaling to a point where it's like, okay, we get it. Like you have some luxuries that not everyone else yeah, does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you know, you're there for six or seven hours. You're not on the whole time. Mm-mm. You can't possibly just be like, "All right, guys, uh, you're here to learn, and I'm going to keep that in the forefront of my mind." So we're going to examine every single spot, and it's my. You're foretabling, and you're running through scenarios, and you know, tournaments are emotional. I explained this yesterday on stream, and I think it's like a huge point that even after explaining it. Uh, I could tell people just didn't get because I would run a little, I don't even want to say run bad, just things would happen. Just run within the yeah. scope of what can happen. Yeah, and yeah. I was just like kind of explaining that like, you know, specifically whenever you're getting to see a fast track insight at tournaments, which you're seeing day in and day out. I'm playing four to six events every single day. Right. Re-entries forever. So like you're always late lasting through like half to two thirds of the field anyway. I was like, whenever you get uh, that microcosm view every single day, and there are so many spots where equities run close, and it's just not even a decision. Like, you know, when you have 22 blinds and ace-queen, yeah. you're just all in. And sometimes you run into kings. Sometimes you run into ace-king. Sometimes you flip and you lose. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, you flip and you lose. It's hard to actually get it in as a dominating favorite in these spots. And then sometimes you do get it in as a dominating favorite, and they have, like, queen-10, and they drill it. And it's like... You get to see all this happen in real time and you remember each and every one of them. But like what I was trying to explain is that uh, the nature of tournaments is such that there isn't a whole lot of depth when it comes to post-flop play. Mm-hmm. So you're just all in a lot. You see a ton of showdowns and because of that, equities are going to run really true. What you're witnessing is what it's like to watch 55-45 run out. A lot. Right. Yeah. Just I mean, if my edge in the event is 10%, like this is what it looks like. This is what a 10% edge looks like in in a broad stroke and most of that is going to be a lot of what feels like getting unlucky a little bit of what feels like getting lucky and then a lot of just like standard stuff that could have gone either way and is going to have a massive impact on your bottom line for that day do you think that so i i kind of envision this this way and see what you think so i think that the runs that have occurred between like Foxen, Coleman, Fedor. Like, these runs, I don't think people grasp, one, how unlikely they are, and then two, the field size that they're playing, right? Mm -hmm. When we we now look at a situation that is a standard path of a normal field size of maybe roughly three to five hundred people, a not out of graph like run it looks more like this but i think this the the public skew of oh if you're good you're supposed to win if you're the best in the field you're supposed to win has skewed the the mark of like oh well you're not winning so you're not that good i don't even i don't even think it's necessarily that like, i don't think their runs are that improbable either because right. what you're not seeing is all of their their busts their busts yeah mm. so it's like the volume is just relative they're playing very 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 low volume mm-hmm. by comparison and yeah, we're catching them at statistical highs. Um, 
and there's a lot of glory in short that comes wind frames in, in short uh, time frames. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a lot of glory that comes with that because they're playing super big uh, mm-hmm. stakes, and it's in the live realm, so it's spread out long enough where you can't forget, mm-hmm. right? It's a short it's a short time frame in the sense of volume, but when it happens over the course of 12, 18, 24 months, that's a long human time right, frame, right. right? So like when Foxen's at the top of the leaderboard. 10 times throughout the course of a year that's notable but the reality is he's playing in fields that are like 25 to 60 people deep Mm -hmm. and he's just going to be at the top his fair share Mm -hmm. right so it's like it's probable that if he plays 100 events in a year which maybe that's a lot let's say maybe he plays 50 events in the year right he's gonna be atop the leaderboard evenly one or two times no matter what and if he has edge maybe it's double that amount maybe it's four or five times no matter what and then if he's on the uh, on the upswing of a of a sun run of sorts, now it might be ten times. And if he's on top of the leaderboard ten times, that means that like he's probably gonna win GPI Player of the Year that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has back yeah. to back to back for sure. So do you think that those like big high roller fields have skewed the the way people look at tournaments in terms of they think that like you can go on those runs like and if you are the best, you ha- you should be winning and like things like that or you think that people are kind of in the know of well tournaments are a little bit crazy well i think that they reignited that thought process because for the first 10 years we were only seeing like 10k events and below and we would see the same process right initially like wpts were similar to the high roller fields Mm. the only difference is they were five or six times the size so you'd be looking at fields of like 200 250 300 and you'd see the same names cropping up over and over again. Right. So there might have been 25 really, really talented players in the field, comparable to like the super high roller bowls now. And those 25 would just have their unfair share of wins. And that's how they became household names in the in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. That's how the Gus Hansons and the Negranus and the Helmuths and the uh, Eric Lindgrens and all these other faces Antonio's, that we knew. Yeah. yeah the, the, it was from winning multiple WPT events, winning multiple bracelets things of that nature that can't happen now mm. you know uh we we saw record field sizes last year now maybe we'll go back to that after covid because there's gonna be a decline in the live environment but you know we're just seeing tremendously large fields and what the high rollers provide insight back to is that idea of being able to pick a favorite and just root them on every single event because they have a fighting chance so the field size is so small that it does feel like uh people can win their unfair share and we do love what variance looks like in the short term, mm. right? Like when we see the runs, like what Fedor did, what uh, Coleman did, what even going all the way back to like the original, uh, f- like first year of high rollers, really uh, what Eric Seidel did. Yeah. It was like yeah. a reemergence of, of Seidel's career. Um, we love to see it because it's a story. It gives us a focal point for when it's a year, that's a long period of time. You know, we, we create almost these seasons out of the events. Um, but I think as edge decreases more and more in these high roller fields, you're just going to see less Bonomos, less Fedors, less Alex Foxins, less uh, Sidels, whatever. And you're just going to see a, a more fair, even distribution. Like, look at somebody like Bryn. Mm-hmm. Bryn hasn't really put together yeah, yeah. Uh, a subset of, or he hasn't like strung together so many wins that we were just like, oh my God, what is happening? This guy is on another planet. But he's all-time winning money list, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think like the last person that really did it in a way and this is no discredit to the high rollers it's just again they're they're doing it largely in small fields i think the last person that we saw 
and pretty much where this ended in the poker sphere, and I don't know if we'll ever get it back, was Mercier. Mm -hmm. What he did over the course of his career consistently from 2008 yeah. until he effectively you know, moved on to, to marriage and stuff in 2016. Yeah. So for eight solid years, he was just winning seven figures every single year in open events. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really impressive. I mean, he was clearly ahead of his time and then also ahead of his time in terms of like learning other games too. The benchmark used to be winning seven figures in a year. So if you won a million dollars in a year playing mm. tournaments, you were in the upper 1%. I remember I did it uh, 2016 and 17 back to back. It was the first time I ever had seven figure gear in tournaments and I did it two years in a row. And I remember thinking to myself like, wow, this used to be the benchmark and I'm not even in the GPI top 100 mm -hmm. right now. No, that's crazy, right? I, what, why do you think that is? Do you think there's just like so much, like it's such a, well, do you think even outside of high rollers, like there's such an influx of capital, like in tournaments as a whole? Mm, yeah, but that, I don't think that matters, right? Like whenever winning a million was the benchmark, it was because of the maximum amount of buy-ins you could put into a year. And I mean, like you were playing everything. The Daniel Granos of the world in 2010 to 15, whatever, the most they were putting up in buy-ins, 200K, 250K. Wow. That seems like a very standard now, like year. That's for, a month yeah. for some people. Right. And even for like, that's a very standard year now, even for like mid-level Right, like grinders. Right, if you're playing 3500s and below, yeah. you're probably looking at about right. that buying yeah. capacity. Right, that's that's pretty wild. Um, okay, so back to the streaming. So, do you feel as if there is a space for the software wide collective in the streaming atmosphere? Like, obviously, it's been done many times by other people. Um, not the least competitive of spaces. Yeah. It's very saturated, I would say. Uh, but I'm really happy with the fact that like we're garnering roughly, you know, 500 to a thousand people, like you know, on average, uh, sometimes consistently 700. What do you think? Um, I agree. It's super competitive. I agree. It's super diluted. Uh, because the thing is, is like the back of the house stuff. It's not as easy as we, or it's not as difficult as we make it sound. It only becomes more difficult when you add layers mm -hmm. that increase your production value. It's pretty easy to just like strap a camera on, press record and get a stream out. Um, doing it right obviously takes some hoops to jump through, but it's really just like having your protocols in place, mm -hmm. making sure that you get the user experience correct. Yeah. What's not competitive is streaming on YouTube. Nobody does it. Mm. We're literally like the only ones. And I think that's why we can garner, you know, 700 to 1,000 users concurrent at the same time. And maybe like having built a steady brand helps having built steady faces to the company, that stuff helps as well. But um, I think the big problem was, and I talked about this with Andre last week, is that we're doing it for brand purposes. And also because it's really the lowest hanging fruit as far as content creation goes right now. Mm -hmm. Like we want to build our YouTube platform. We want to be able to continue to make content and we want to do it efficiently because we're all in struggling times. Mm -hmm. So this is convenient. We're forced to play online more. Uh, the hours would be spent playing anyway. So you may as well just turn the camera on. But uh, there's no path to monetization at mm. all. Now, I know that the Twitch streamers do a little bit better. Uh, they get subs and they get... Um, subs and tips. Yeah, yeah tips and, and like whatever else. And I'm sure we could go about getting the Super Chat and Patreon and stuff like that. But it's kind of I think people negligible. do it man I uh you know I got a lot of text messages about our streams and people seem to like think that we're giving a lot 
you know, in terms of providing strategy and like answering like every single question that comes in. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, that avenue of Patreon and, and, and things like that has created a space for people that do want to create content and people that are appreciative of that content for them to reciprocate that, that, uh, that exchange. I agree. I just think it's, it's, uh, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, each one of our streams averages probably about 7,000 total views with about 700 concurrent viewers. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's one of those things where it's like, sure, if they like it, maybe they contribute to the Patreon, uh, whatever the case may be. But I think that like the amount of revenue that we would get out of it is pretty negligible. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it would be like shocking to me and like would average something like 5k a month. But like in my head, I think it would be more like 500 a month. Mm-hmm. And then to me, it becomes a matter of like, this isn't a good look. It's almost like panhandling or, or, or more so like playing a guitar on a corner with a mm-hmm. change bucket out. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That's a great start, but we're not starting. Right. So like, to me, it's just like, either we give the content out because we recognize that it's good for everybody, both us and our, our community, or we do it strictly for the monetization. Element. So I look at it in a different light. Uh, I look at it. So it's more like a, like a team thing where it's like, yes, you are providing uh, a content and yes, you are like giving them something. But there is also something for the consumer when they give you something and they're part of team software wide. Yeah. It's like, Oh, here's like $5. I really like this. Like I'm part of this group, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's a lot of what happened with like Jay Carver. Like, like the run it up warriors were all like a team now. It's like, they all were, but they had nowhere else to go. These guys can all subscribe to, to our TV site. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like inevitably, inevitably we're, but that's not the same. It's not as fun. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Like there's people that don't want to like know about your exploitative matrix. They want to know about like that, those hundred dates that you went on. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, so we're going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to talk about it. You guys want me? All right, let's fucking talk about it, man. All these hundred dates that I keep talking. I got a bunch of messages like, yo, break you went on a hundred dates for real. And I'm like, that's what I heard. I a lot know. of them were forgettable, man. Well, Okay. So you went on a hundred dates after the hundred dates. What, like what happened? Like you just stopped. It was like a hard stop at a hundred. No, no. I mean, all this did you have like a count on the wall where you're just like one? No, no. When I say a hundred, it's, it's for convenience sake. It was like roughly a hundred. I would say 115. I would say it was in the, it was in the range of like 90 to 110. Heartbreak Burke. (laughs) Oh God. No, there was honestly, I think there was like eight second dates. Hmm. Out of all of them. Yeah. yeah. So, it, I mean, it was, you know, it was the the precipice of online dating yeah, yeah. kind of becoming popular. It was literally just like, hey, what's up? What's up with you? Nothing. Want to hang out? Okay. And then you like. What site did you wear, wear on? Uh, so, started with OkCupid and Plenty of Fish mm-hmm. because there was no Tinder yet. So, you had to do it the old school way where literally you would like search in your radius and you would filter by like body type and hair and what was your body type and athletic. hair and what was the hair brunette Damn, you, you heard it out there you heard it out there you heard um but y'all, yeah y'all blondies are showers <laughs> yo 
We're about to see uh, the blonde population get reduced by about 60% during this COVID. Wow, that's true, because they can't go out of the salon. Yeah, they that's can't go crazy. get that shit dyed. Now all of a sudden we realize everybody was fucking brunette at the beginning. Yeah, yeah and that's not so bad, you heard? Um, <laughs> okay, no, I think that's cool. So then, okay, you, you went on all these dates. After that, what happened? Like, you you went on, like, a down period? You were just like, okay, like, I did so this. it started, like... Should I write a book? Like I, I really, really wish. So there's a couple things I wish I would have done, but... Uh, it started like early 2012 as I was going broke and I decided to like make Damn, life. You really did it up. It's like, yeah. it's like, girl, I'm broke, but we're going out. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to stave off being broke as long as possible, but that's um, not how you do it. I paid $5 for frozen yogurt or some shit. Like that's that. why there was no second deal. date. I got you. Maybe. Um, no, but like, uh, yeah, I just, I wasn't very picky because I wanted to get over the shyness factor mm. of like meeting somebody new and having to like go through the interview process. I'm still to this point, like I think we facilitate the roles we do in this vlogcast because I am less comfortable being the interviewer and more comfortable being the interviewee. Oh, I know. Don't worry. Everyone always says like, whose show is it? I was like, clearly my show because clearly like, yours. because like the show doesn't run. Who, what are you going to talk about? We've done Who's gonna... 45 episodes. Listen, it's better. And there's you. been one where I haven't shown up. <laughs> I understand. But at the end of the day, like who are you gonna talk to? Like uh, who's gonna who's gonna pull the greatness out of you, Burke? I didn't like, say I can't do interviews. I don't know. I just I'm said, just saying, you know, I'm not as good. And the I reason just, why I'm I'm able to do them at all is largely in part to this hundred. I've, I've given you forty dates in this fucking <laughs> vlogcast. Okay, please, I'll take the under thirty-five dates. Okay, right? thirty-five minutes. Thirty-five first dates. I've interviewed Nick Hauer on this show five times. Do you know what that's like? That's hard. I can't do it. That, that's good. I mean, you're like, okay, good. Okay, uh, so you went 100 dates, and then you were like, there was a couple things that you wish you did. Well, well like, so it was just like this thing where um, it wasn't intentional. It was just like, I want to get over the shyness that I have, mm-hmm. especially because like one of the very first dates I told this story on stream was like this girl that I was really into. We had texted for like uh, a week and a half or so. She just checked all the boxes. We went to dinner and didn't speak. Mm-hmm. And I mean like, not a fucking word. So like I would try to ask her open-ended questions and I'm just like in panic, like full-blown anxiety. And I'm just like, so, uh, you know, um, what do you think of this? And she was just like, shrug. And like hit me with nothing. I'm like, oh my God, the ice princess, man. So like we left the date and I just text her. I was like, hey, I know tonight was awkward. Uh, I, I really hope that we can at least stay friends or whatever. And she was like, no, I'd really like to give it another try. Like, I'm into you, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, okay. Bro, that's how it is. That's how they get you, man. One of my exes is like that. You know her. She was like, she was like, didn't talk to me at all. And I'm just like, what the hell's going on? This girl. We were on dinner for two hours. I was with her for three days. Three days? Well, I mean, she came to the academy. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. uh, anyway, so yeah, it was wild. That's crazy. Okay, so then. So we went on a we, second date. Okay. And I just bring the dogs and we go for like a, a walk at the park or whatever. Same thing. Doesn't say a fucking word to me. And I'm just like, okay, well, this isn't going to work. That's funny. <laughs> like I'm already shy. Maybe she was intimidated worse. by you. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it fizzled quickly, but I was like, I don't want to experience that any longer. Like mm. I want to be able to carry a conversation. So um, it was also just one of those times where like we were all kind of exploring online dating mm. and it was just easy. It was super mm. easy. So like I was just matching left and right. And I was just lining them up. And I was wow. like, okay, like, let's see what happens. And it wasn't with any intention of just like, I want to put in mass volume. Yeah. It was just more so like, I'll give anybody a chance right now and uh, see what comes of it. Maybe I'll end up with some friends. Maybe I'll end up with some girls I really like, whatever. Um, 
and it was a lot more of just you know a bunch of duds mm. to uh to come across a couple gems his gigolo always on the go <laughs> uh yeah i mean that sounds that sounds really good that sounds exciting it wasn't it was awful <laughs> it was a terrible experience uh there was a blog that i was reading throughout the course of it it was called uh let me get this right i think it was called like 40 days or something like that mm. and it was these two friends in new york city that worked in publishing i believe uh they'd been really good friends forever and they decided as an experiment that they were going to start to date and they would journal it every single day mm. so they had this like list of questions that they had to answer every single day throughout the process and it was fascinating yeah to like read and see how it all evolved and i was like i was too deep into it at that point because i just hadn't been taking notes or anything but i was like man i wish i would have done something like this because it would have been super easy from a creative standpoint i think you should do it again no i think you should no do it again what do you guys way. what do you guys and girls think in the chat should berkey go on a hundred dates and after the date you do a little like video chat, you know. You no do, chance. You do a little. You do a little vlog. There's, you let the people know where you going. No way. Where I would frozen do this. yogurts you eating? There's no way I would do this. I, I honestly haven't online dated in like traditionally speaking from like Tinder and stuff like that. Probably in six years. Give it a shot. And man. like every now and again, I'll re-download it just mm. to swipe, and it's a bigger fucking cesspool. Every single time. What do you mean by cesspool? Like it's just some of. I, I'm not criticizing people. I've never. I've Tinder. never had. I've never had it. So. I'm oh my god! It's trying. a video game. It's, it's a <laughs> video game, man. It's literally a video game. It's just like hot, not hot, not hot, not. You're just swiping left and right, and then you match with people, and you take a second look at it, and you're like, why did I swipe right on this person to begin with? Mm-hmm. Like then you go to read their profile, and it's like sugar baby looking for a daddy, <laughs> or like some other wild shit, and it's just like, what am I doing, man? Oh my God. This is just an OnlyFans account, mm. like top to bottom. It's such a waste of time. Like I don't think it's feasible to do now. I don't think people are online dating yeah. with uh, with good intentions. And I'm way, way too old for this shit. I don't know, man. You seem like a young guy, like pretty fit. You not, can get out there. Not, not interested, man. I'm I think, I think we put the challenge out there. I've, I think I've grown into disliking people. If there's a hundred females out there that would like to take my man Matt Berkey out on a date, or him take you out on a date, hit us up, Matt Berkey eleven. Oh, sorry, Berkey eleven on Twitter. You might. I'm, I'm, don't hit me up. Wow, you might have just showered the girl of your dreams. <laughs> That's fine. They were just opening the door, like, wow, I was listening to this guy every day on the podcast, like every week. And now it's it's just different. When I was, you know, when I was twenty, or sorry, when I was thirty, it was trying to get over the the things I struggled with in adolescence, shyness mm. being one of them. And it's like now that I'm thirty eight, it's more so like trying to get over the intermediate stuff where like you're not giving yourself enough to a relationship or you have like disconnections here and there and things along those lines and volume doesn't fix that yeah quality's a lot more necessary as you mature let's talk about poker sure please let, let you off the hook please bit, you know and I, I know when you're getting a little nervous you know i, I, I this is why this is why i'm the show you know when i get nervous <laughs> you I haven't know. seen me fucking nervous since you've known me yeah i thought you were a little nervous in super high roller bowl season two when i wasn't there with you but anyway, you, you thought I was nervous season one, but that was just because you were gonna puke. I mean, fuck, it was it was a lot of money, you know. All right. Anyway, so uh, I've been watching the streams, and one of the things that I've I've realized that is like a major leak, you know. So for the people that stuck around through the whole thing and now want to talk about poker, bet sizing is 
I don't know if it's at his worst state I've ever seen. I yeah. think everyone's confused. Well, I think good players just know so much and the the rest just think it doesn't matter. Yeah. Think that like just arbitrarily choosing a number is effective, but it's just like you show your ignorance the second that mm. you start missizing in, in situations. So what do you think is going on? Because I I don't I don't know. Like it's just like I think when you and I read a hand or see a hand, we're just like, okay, this board, this bet means X range. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that that range could be disguised, and you could put in different things into that range. Yo, I jumped in for the first time last night on stream. I did like it was right at the break, and I literally was like, "All right, I'm gonna use a bathroom. I'll be back in five minutes." And I just sat on the couch, and I was just taking deep breaths because the chat had me on such fucking raging tilt. Why raging tilt? Because they just kept questioning why I assert that my opponents are thinking a certain way mm. and like why I put so much energy in trying to figure out like what they're, and I'm not. Mm. And I couldn't explain to them enough that like when I say a bet is illogical or doesn't align with a certain texture or a particular range or anything like that, and that he should have X or he should have bet Y or like, you know, all of these things, I'm not asserting that he's thinking that way. I don't care how he's thinking. Yeah. All I'm asserting is that there is an obvious mechanical error taking place. And from that, I can derive a counter strategy. So it started from uh, a situation where I C-bet sevens on ace-jack-five rainbow. And the big blind, uh, uh, it was under the gun versus uh, big blind. Yeah. And the big blind check min-raised me. Okay. And we were like 85 blinds effective. So it went two blinds, four blinds. That's not a thing. Right. <laughs> right. That's what I said. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have better bluffs here, but I just think that this is so not a thing that I'm just going to turn sevens into a bluff because if I get called, I'll still likely have two outs to the nuts. Yeah. And if he re-raises, who gives a shit? My hand has zero right. showdown. He value. just has ace jack. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it would be nice if I had some blockers, but like having queen 10 doesn't really matter that much because... It doesn't block any two pair plus hands anyway. Having a jack would be nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So I three bet to 12 blinds and he just smashes for 85. <laughs> and I laughed. I'm just like, this is so... And he snapshot. I yeah. mean, like 12 blinds all in. He just has fives. And I'm just getting ridiculed in the chat for like 30 minutes about like how I'm trying to ascertain what types or what he's thinking about when he check min raises and stuff like that. And it's just like, listen... No, I'm not. I don't care. And, it, and they're like, don't you think that his his uh, choice in sizing cho or caused that reaction out of you? And it's like, well, kind of, because check raising ace-jack-5 from the big blind isn't really a high-frequency uh, thing. You're just not going to have very much availability to do so. And you have way more bluffs to choose from than you do value. So, like, yeah, when I get check-raised here... I'm sometimes going to react through a three bet. It's such a negative free roll, right? For us to be almost always in front of the mic and discussing like strategy because we don't know who this person is right. that is questioning you. Yeah, of course. It's just like... And the thing is, he was a fan of the stream. He meant well. No, 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 of course. I I'm just saying, even if, let's say, for example, we like remove us, right? Yeah. We like are watching another person that's an expert in their field, right? Yeah. And it's just like something that we know something like we know a little bit about, right? Yeah, like, yeah. We, like it's like, let's say we're, we're talking to like Naval or we're talking to someone that is just like an expert in that field. And we know a little bit about investing. We know a little bit about, uh, you know, 
dealing with things that make us happy and like all these things, but we don't, we're not experts in these, in these fields. And we're just like randoms that are just like constantly like poking holes in what he's saying. And mm-hmm. that does that get you frustrated? Cause it gets me a little frustrated where it's like, I don't know, Joe Billy from like, who are like, I bet that. Okay. Like, <laughs> like what is going on? Um, but it's interesting because I don't think this has ever happened in a different stage in the in, in well, time. I think it's what comes with being a teacher. It's the patience that you have to employ as a teacher. That's why I didn't like snap. Yeah, yeah. I just took a break and took a few deep breaths and then came back and collected myself. But do you think like Peter Atia or something like gets this? Um, no. Be and the difference is, I mean, yes, but I would assume, and maybe I'm just projecting. I would assume his frustrations are lesser. The reason is, is because nothing in the medical field or the body optimization field is simple. People accept right away that there's a massive barrier to entry there and that you have to really know your shit to even begin. So it's like, from my perspective, I've been researching diet and nutrition for 15 years and I've, I've gone through many, many, many cycles of contradicting myself Mm -hmm. in order to arrive at a better conclusion, right? So I know that if I'm going to challenge an expert on something, or if I even want to just get like insightful feedback, I have to be framing my question with a lot of humility, Mm. right? In poker, anybody can sign up and play and anybody can win at any given time, reinforcing the fact that they quote unquote know what they're doing or talking about. Now, give them a little vernacular Mm. from an article or a book or a training video. And suddenly they immediately put themselves on the same level as those who are considered to be, uh, not just professionals, but potentially like, you know, experts in the field. And so I imagine that in no other realm is the barrier of entry as low as it is in poker with as much high-end technical jargon necessary to understand it at a deep level. So you think that what's happening is that since there is no like stamp that's saying like you are expert, like Mm -hmm. there's no MD, PhD, JD, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden, anyone could just say, well, you know, I I know this. So, like, you should have done this. And, and that's kind of what, what we're saying. So, does that frustrate you? Because I, I do feel like it frustrates me at times where it's like, I don't, like, it, it's like, okay, like, I'm doing you guys a favor. Not a favor. Okay. Favor is wrong. But, like, the fact that I'm even speaking so much openly, I think, is a favor because people don't, people, there's an argument that people shouldn't do that. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's fair. Um I yeah, obviously I was frustrated. I was I was tilted. Mm-hmm. I was annoyed. But like the frustration comes from I guess it's the lack of humility. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's the projecting that because a result was negative, there was obviously a better uh choice. Mm-hmm. Or that because a result was negative, I clearly must be contradicting myself. Mm. Right? Which just isn't the case. And it's very difficult to explain because um, they're trying to parse a cavern that separates us or, or really a, a, not a cavern, a canyon that mm. separates us in knowledge, right? And so they're at the absolute entry phase and I'm somewhere almost two decades into being more evolved, right? And we're trying to speak to one another through the same language and through the same lens. So I'm trying to meet him halfway by re- being reductive in my strategy talk and he's trying to, I guess, meet me halfway by projecting what it is that he feels confident in. Mm-hmm. 
uh, say like the, the the worst to me is when people say like a risk is unnecessary. And it's just like, all you're doing is projecting risk aversion onto me. I'm a professional. If I deem a risk to be necessary, then it was probably fucking necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that I won't make errors. Right. But what it is to say is that the errors are going to be on the margins. We're going to be talking about taking like a negative EV spot that might be losing like a half a blind. Or it might be a close spot where we're winning half a blind. And you as the observer aren't going to know the difference. They're both just going to look like negative EV spots because it's that close. And we're going to lose at a really high frequency. We're going to lose half the time yeah. or slightly more, right? So now you're going to say like, you just shouldn't risk your 20 blinds there. You can do so much more with it. It's like, well, that's just not how it works. Yeah, it's tough because I think that it if someone was handed, like the question that you that you gave me was like, oh, like when we first started our like coaching student relationship was like, oh, okay, if you were handed 100,000, right? But I look at it today and I was like, what if you were handed like $10 million? It's like, would you ever pass on a 0.5 big blind? Like, would you ever? Right. Like, the only reason people pass on small on small edges is because the volatility is too high for their bankroll. Right. Right. And I and I even extrapolated to like company like company situations where it's like, okay, like, what if your company was given like a hundred million dollars? Like now, the only thing that matters is not vol- the volume of your decisions, but rather the quality of the decisions that you make when you make the decisions. Right. So. At the end of the day, we're all getting paid for our judgment calls, right? Same thing in poker, same thing in business, and and same thing in like whatever it is, right? So it's like you making the judgment call that this is plus EV and a necessary risk. It's what separates you from someone saying like, this is not like, this is pretty close, but it's not necessary. Right. So the more of those decisions that you get right, the more you're getting paid. But I think that's the canyon that you're speaking about. Yeah, and also the trouble is is that that's only true if we can actually pump it out of volume. So right. I may not ever be compensated mm-hmm. for being on the right side of this. But that's the, that's that's poker, right? Yeah. In yeah, business, yeah. you and do. That, but, right. but that's right. that's what they're trying to juggle, yeah. right? Is this yeah. mindset that like you could take all the flip spots where you're the 1% favorite and still never actualize that full 1% mm-hmm. and therefore suffer pain and ruin. And for a lot of people, that's just too marginal. Yeah, They'd rather have the 5% edge or the 10% edge. And that's nice if you can navigate it that way. Right. But it's like, you know, when you have 20 blinds and ace-queen facing a cutoff open, you're all in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There for are just sure. some strategic things that don't change the, the profit margin. That is your 10%, 20% edge mm-hmm. is the fact that like this hand is just going to fold really, really, really often. And when they don't, you're still 30% to win the pot. Correct, yeah. It's tough. I think that that game of looking at poker through an investment model is probably something that needs to be analyzed further because I'm I'm looking at it like it, that's all it is. Like a lot of small plus EV decisions that hopefully add up to like a big payout when we're talking about tournaments. But that's why strategy is so critical, right? Because it's impossible in real time to measure the EV of each of your small decisions. Mm. So what we have to do is operate on the aggregate. We just have to know that we're employing a strategy that on average outperforms our opponents. Right. And that's really, really difficult to quantify to people because in order to actually demonstrate it like mathematically, we would actually have to go through and parse out each and every small decision and say, look, 
Here's a plus EV spot. Here's a plus EV spot. Here's a plus EV spot. Here's a neutral spot or maybe a spot where we might be losing slightly depending on how our opponent responds. But the strategies that are born off of it are all almost equivocally, unequivocally. The future game. The future yeah, the game future game simulation is almost certainly going to be plus EV. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, there's just like a lot of variables in there that we get to play with. Do you think, say, so I, I looking at it, looking at it today and I think that investment and poker very, like, have very similar paths. Obviously, they they differentiate, but you know we teach this a lot in in the academy where it's like tournaments are not like there is poker involved a lot of it, of course that vehicle. But at the end of the day, like it's it's still an investment strategy. Yeah, um, you can be playing tiddlywinks. Right. All you're really doing is finding the spots where it makes the most sense to take on risk. Right. Uh, a good example of this, I'm trying to think. There's like a um, Man, I can't remember if it's a board game or like a game show or something of that nature, but effectively, like you're given a bankroll of some sort. Uh, so l- let's just do a hypothetical because I can't remember the exact example. Mm-hmm. But effectively, you're just giving a bankroll of sort, and you have to parse through certain amount of decisions. And if you come out the other side, then you get to keep whatever you're left with, mm. be it wins, losses, or uh, break even. Right? Okay. Sounds like The Apprentice kind of. Yeah, kind of. But so effectively, like what you're trying to do is make the most plus EV decisions as possible and land with uh, a positive return. But risk aversion really, really curbs this a little bit. And for most, since they're risking, this this is the irony, they're risking nothing. They're just Mm. risking the opportunity, right? But going broke is so detrimental because it means that they've wasted time for no return. So most people will try to figure out different investment strategies throughout the course of this they're a lot less aggressive, right? So like, imagine we did like right, a, a right. toy stock market game. Uh, they this, do this they in do high this schools all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Give kids 200 bucks and they get to play the market, right? And now you'll see a bunch of different risk profiles uh, formulate. There'll be the kids who understand that uh, just making money to them because it's an essential free roll is most important. So they'll find like a low risk profile where they're looking to make like a half a percent throughout the duration. You'll find kids who like kind of hedge don't really know what to do. They take some high risk stock, they take some low risk stock, and they they landing in the middle. Then you see kids that are just like wild gamblers, recognizing it's a free roll and they want to hit a home run. Mm-hmm. Like all of this stuff, it's the same thing in poker, right? Largely speaking, we're trying to develop strategies that, at baseline, are meant to break even. Like that's the thing that I think people don't understand is GTO imperfection. Right. When countered by GTO, is zero sum. Zero. Right. It yeah. it wins. It loses nothing. It can never be exploited. Uh, now, it obviously outperforms non-GTO responses, but so does exploitative play. Correct. So now we have decisions to make, especially because we're never going to execute either of them perfectly. Correct. So now we have to kind of look at the aggregate of like, okay, well, if I look at the collection of my decisions, it's obviously not GTO and it's going to fall slightly exploitative, but is playing as close to a mimicking strategy of balance going to yield me fewer mistakes on my end and generate more mistakes from my foes or is being in tune to how they're making errors and then countering appropriately going to be what gives me the biggest bottom line. Correct. And there's no answer to that, right? It, it really, that's where skill in poker comes down. Right. That, that's what I was saying in terms of judgment. Yeah. Like if you're good at ju- that second, that second part of what you said, identifying first the judgment of how good you are in terms of identifying your opponent's flaws. Right. Like, are you good at judging that? Mm-hmm. Then secondly, are you good at making the judgment call of what 
the counter to that would be. Right. And then third, how risk, like, is that risk worth it in the tournament? Or can you afford it? Right, exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Like, can yeah. you afford to take this risk or is it too, de- too detrimental to your ability to move forward in the tournament when you fail? When you are good at those three things, now you're pretty much an expert at exploitative play. Mm-hmm. When you're not, you need to kind of fall back to this, like, mimicking uh, GTO approximation strategy, which has become more popular. But that's why I'm saying I think they're just there's a reason why there's only like certain Warren Buffett's certain people that like are very good at angel investing or VCs, et cetera. Not everybody can do this second part. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's a lot of people that just have to just fall into this first camp. And I think that's OK. But I think when you're trying to talk. Well, I would this, argue, I would argue that like the the standouts are actually just the best at the first part, the exploitative part. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. But, like yeah, the yeah. Warren Buffett's yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, the, like the top VCs in Silicon Valley, like yeah. they're just making judgment calls. Yeah. They're not making like they're not running like bots all fucking day. Like, right. you know, to like they're not implementers. A, they're innovators. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And that's what I'm saying. I think that's where the situation is being like miscommunicated in these streams where you're trying to talk to people that are like, oh, why are you taking these risks? Like, why are you um, like, why don't you just pass? It's a 730, like whatever at best, et cetera. And you're saying like, well, these are these three points that I am making in my judgment. And that's allowing me to take these spots. Right. I'm not going to be right all the time. Of course, no one is, but like you are making these situations and you're, you're moving past this situation. So that's how I learned. I mean, that's how you taught me. And that's how I learned Perkwish. So it was like, like, I don't even, I don't even look the other way. And, and I'm kind of glad that I don't, because like, I would feel like when these two things try to come together, it's a mess. And I've tried that. Yeah. And, and I, I think, uh, well, first I want to say, I think you're nailing it because ultimately at the end, when those questions pop up, the true answer is I trust myself. Right. Right. That's that should be my my true response is that uh, I'm not going to get into all the work I've done to get to a point where I trust myself, but just know that I'm doing this because I trust myself. Mm-hmm. And then secondarily, to your point of like how these two worlds collide, we saw this in the Gelfond Challenge. Mm-hmm. He mentioned it in the interview with with Ingram, where he's just like, you know, what changed? And Gelfond effectively said, like, I was doing all this work with solvers and in developing uh, this this new vision course for, for, mm-hmm. uh, for run, for of run once, once, yeah. and all this other stuff. And he became so obsessed with each and every decision being judged correctly by the solver that he didn't recognize that like his implementation was failing because of it. And now he was just getting wrecked by somebody who was more studied in this or, or maybe equally as studied. Yeah. Uh, and on the positive side of variance, right. And also used to thinking in that way. Right. Yeah. And effectively without actually saying it, he just basically implied, like, at some point, I just realized I'm Phil fucking Gelfond. Mm-hmm. And I innovated PLO mm-hmm. at one point. So, like, I'm just going to trust what I've internalized from these solvers and now implement it to the best of my ability through the lens by which I see this game. Yeah. He hasn't fucking looked back. And that's the sure. thing. The self-trust, whenever you become reliant on a calculator, just deteriorates. Yeah. Because now the only thing you're really putting any v- validation into is that your assumption process is clean enough that when you run the solve later, the response will be accurate. Do you think there's some problems in like the way, so I'm looking at it through like the validation process, right? Where it's like, when you're a professional poker player, one, you you kind of already struggle in terms of like, what are you providing to the world or whatever. Sure. Uh, But then secondly, 
now when you're always looking for an outside source to judge your decisions that of which is not human that like you kind of become less of a person almost like your your decisions matter like feel like they don't belong to you yeah does that make sense in a 100%. way 100% like, and, and it goes further because it's not even objective that's mm -hmm. the biggest problem is it's not objective it's subjected to your assumptions and and this is the most critical and that i could get across to people your ability to read the data mm -hmm. 99 percent of people in poker are not data analysts right right so here's a common misconception that we see when it comes to solver outputs it spits back a mix yeah. right okay so say we're talking about um having a, a range bet on a board texture versus a check right and what we see is it spits back a mixed strategy that leans heavily towards checking all candidates, right? So say on average, it checks 60% and bets 40. Right. But every single candidate gets bet at some frequency. Right. You can just range bet. Mm. Mm. I didn't know that. Right? You can just range bet or range check. You can, you can do either. Either. Yeah. Because the, the reason it's right. mixing is that the EV EV's is negligible close. between Correct. the two. Correct. Right. right? And since it's mixing with literally 100% of the candidates, you can take a simple strategy there. Right. Now, That's it's less effective, of course. Right. And you're open to exploits. But it's also really, really, really difficult for the exploit to do yeah, much. For sure. It's, it's only going to be on later streets mm -hmm. that it becomes an issue. So it's not even that, uh, that that's such a problem that people are, are not necessarily aware of these types of things. It's more so just an indication that it takes a very advanced level of comprehension to even do anything with the readouts. So whenever this is your crutch, when this is your backbone to building a strategy, you're pretty fucked or you're pretty you're you're pretty restricted, I guess, mm. to all of the work you've done before you ever enter a single uh data point into the solver. I think there was a little bit of of like some good that came from us delaying our like jump into 100%. into that. 100%. Where it was like, we're like, no, we think we're right. We think we're right. We think we're right. Or you guys are, or at least in the minimum, you guys are not that right. It, it, is, it was, is, is what I, we I remember reading applications that John wrote mm -hmm. and just thinking like, uh, applications I, one or two. Well, it was applications and then uh, advanced yeah, no yeah, limit, or right. no limit holding for advanced right. poker players. So the second one was much, much better, but yeah. he, he like walked back a bunch of principles from applications. And it's not that applications wasn't good. Jonda was uh, a pioneer yeah. of introducing game theory to the community, but um, you know he was doing it in very much a kind of like the way that we came to understand game theory, mm -hmm. where he was coming from first principles, but was also just like making a lot of assumptions, uh, kind of like pulling arbitrary numbers out of a hat, and uh, you know effectively I I remember reading it and specifically like. Um, I remember Dan bringing up the indifference principle and telling me like, uh, we were playing a home game. I, you probably remember this. We were playing at Princeville. I hope so. And there was a spot where like, uh, he check raised me on the flop and I was thinking and he goes, I don't care what you do, man. Oh my God. I'm indifferent as fuck. <laughs> I'm just fucking indifferent to whatever I was there. you do. I was and there. it's like, we still had like many pots behind and it's like, no, no. 
you care. <laughs> and I remember, like, I had exposure to game theory from my computer science background, not specific necessarily to, I'm to different as fuck. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, no, you care. You care because we're not on the river. This isn't a binary mm-hmm. decision, right? Like, it's not that I either have equity. Everything or nothing. Or, yeah, it's, yeah. It, I, I'm not in a nuts or air spot. We're not at the ace-king-queen game mm-hmm. point in the tree yet, right? Like, I have equity. <laughs> you want that equity to fold. Yeah, I could turn into an ace real quick. Yeah, and yeah. you want me to call with hands that are drawing dead to you. Like, yeah. you're not indifferent here at all. Right. If you're bluffing, you want my equity to fold. Right. And if you are value betting, like, you know, you want my worst to call, of course. Unless you're at 100%, you're not indifferent. Right, 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 right. right. And I, I get how it was misconceived because we did know that much about the river. We understood the toy games about the river at that point. It was a binary position of, of the game tree. And we were trying to reverse engineer it and work backwards. Mm-hmm. Right? We were trying to extrapolate things out to the flop. And we, we had been using these terms and jargon throughout poker for decades where it's like you're either value betting or you're bluffing. Yeah. And then the introduction of like quote unquote semi-bluffing got mm. introduced and like that became like a misnomer. So, you know, we're quantifying things on the flop now suddenly where it's like, well, either you're value betting or you're bluffing. It's like, okay, so if I have two overs and an open-ended straight flush draw, am I value betting or am I bluffing? Semi-bluffing. Right. And it's like yeah. it's it's none of it's yeah, like, well, yeah. you don't have any showdown value. It's like, no, I don't, but I'm sixty-three percent to win this pot. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot there was a lot of that kind of talk. I remember uh don't 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 re-raise this hand and turn it into a bluff. That, yeah. that was a thing. Like, oh, you can't. If you raise, then you're turning this hand into a bluff. And it's right. Like, and all yeah, we're ever yeah. talking about is equity. Right. It's always the spectrum of equity. The the idea of like this hand is too valuable to quote unquote bluff with is really just restating this hand has too much equity to deny ourselves the ability to realize. Right. So it's important to play it a certain way. Uh, so I bring all of this up to the point where you say like I like the that we kind of delayed and fought back a little bit because. That's what we were revolting against. It was never that game theory shouldn't be applied to poker. It was never that there aren't first principles Mm -hmm. that are absolutely critical in understanding this game. And if you look at our evolution, that's everything we've done has been rooted in those first principles of equity, pot odds, EV, et cetera, right? If you look at the community's evolution, it was the exact opposite. It was show me the answer. Show me this machine that can spit out how I can play better. And it, it worked because it, it spit out aggression, right? Mm-hmm. So for those who started getting into solving like 2013, 14, 15, they immediately had more aggressive strategies in the field. right? And they started finding bluff candidates in scenarios where like literally they had none. Polar strategies began first. Right. Before the, before the aggressive strategies. Yeah. Right. Well, polar is naturally aggressive. Well, but yeah. No, it, it wasn't because they had so much checking in the beginning yeah, yeah, yeah before yeah. the yeah. before like the well the, when they had their non-polar correct range correct, it did correct. a lot of check yeah right. so so effectively like they get to a point where it's like oh i'm just printing money mm-hmm. and you start to chalk it up to some of the principles because the way that book was outlined and the way ed miller's follow-up book uh the one percent Pokemon one percent or whatever was outlined it was it was taking these core principles and trying to reduce them down to simple binary terms yeah and it worked for a lot of people because the field itself was so far behind. But you know what else was working a fuck ton back then? What? Super exploitative play because the field yeah. was so far behind. Yeah, that's true. Right? It's like I was overbetting too for way different reasons. So when you start to then look at the evolution, what you see is the smartest people 
who were reverse engineering these strategies back to core principles got it and they excelled and now they make up the high roller pool yeah and there's 50 of them tops Mm -hmm. at most right the rest of the community is now floundering they're just all drowning and going all the way back to your point of like bet sizing being like the most notable pattern that we can pick up on that's incorrect it's because the trend line has now dropped to the floor the trend line in the past was here are all your simple strategies that will exploit the pool yeah and then the entire pool started doing it entire pool range bets yeah the entire pool defends the majority of their range now everyone we now advance to the turn people try to overbet now and they try to go polar but they don't recognize what textures and distributions are allowed to do that on so there's a lot of mistakes that are happening but in the early goings it was okay because there was no obvious defense no one was studied enough yeah now those who are good and have learned from first principles can very quickly identify like nope range advantage did not shift far enough in your favor for you to overbet the turn you're heavily skewed one way or the other. Yeah. Let me see what your incentive is. You have too many bluffs here. You're probably bluffing. Right. And then just say like, I have this card. Right. Move on. Yeah. Exactly. And just make that decision. Yeah. I think it comes out to judgment calls. It's it's fascinating how at the end of the day, we kind of still came a little full circle. Like we started at exploitative play. I think there was this like heavy trend into GTO, you know, the Doug Polk era. And now I think we're exiting out of that and saying like, okay, we accept GTO is and kind of will always be a thing but at the end of the day it's on me to make this call based on the information that i have both on my players this board how he's treating this board my blockers and my overall like how my frequency should look like here do i want to deviate from that frequency yes or no and then make a decision i think a big part of it is that uh the the expected apocalypse never came Mm. so people expected single single raise pots or, or sorry heads up pots rather or heads up no limit hold them to be effectively solved by now mm-hmm. and it's just not and more importantly they expected that we would discover the equilibrium for multi-way pots by now and and we're just eking onto three-way we have like at best estimates right, right? even when you're talking about preflop solves they're very rarely consistent mm-hmm. uh they are just built upon the idea of you know, six or nine uh, solvers playing against one another and coming up with some equilibrium. And it just tends to vary towards the side of being extremely tight. Yeah. Because there isn't a lot of money out there. There's only one and a half blinds to fight for. Mm -hmm. uh, And the rake is relatively high by comparison to those one and a half blinds. So it's basically just saying like, you don't have that much incentive to play any hands from these positions. And then as we go later and later and later, it becomes more incentive to play. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're more likely to win the pot rake free. You are more likely to carry massive range advantage forward post because you'll be in position, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just not how poker is ever going to fundamentally function outside of mass tabling online Mm -hmm. because time is is of the essence. If you sit down for a 10-hour session and you're only allowed to play on average 14.5% of pots. It's going to hurt. You're 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 gonna you're gonna spend weeks, <laughs> yeah. literally not playing outside of defending the big blind, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just like not what humans. And have maybe signed up for. maybe not even that because people are opening like four x. Right. It's just like now you fold that too. Right. And you have to just like blatantly ignore that uh, you aren't playing against eight other rational actors in accordance to what the solver would say, but instead you are trying to emulate the solver from each position while playing against 
eight irrational actors who are not emulating that strategy. So the, the idea is like you will naturally profit by sticking to these tight ranges because all the other people are too loose, but you miss out on all that profit because you die before you get to collect their money. That's funny. All right. I mean, I, this was a, such a fascinating episode. I feel like we could have, we could talk longer. I'm not sure if how, how time is working. I felt like our producer came in and gave us the wave. and He gave you the wave? Yeah. We're literally at an hour on the dot. Wow. Uh, he was just like... <laughs> and I was like, all right, I guess we're done. I, I went I 95 minutes with Andre last week. Well, congratulations, Andre. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, no, I think I think this this conversation is really good. I I want to talk a little bit more next week, I guess, because we got the wave. But tell the people when we can see the streams. Um. So actually, I have one more fucking topic. Fuck producing. Good. Uh, let's talk about homeschool. We just finished week number. Well, we're in the midst of week number two. Yeah. I just finished my second lesson. I'm heavily impressed with the progression of the students like so we did i'll tell you what we did we i i didn't want to give the range splits i i I wanted them to say do we bet this hand yes or no and and why Mm -hmm. and i just put the like real time i was like this board like i opened up the google doc and i put this board it was like 1063 i was like what like i was like give me give me I wrote down like all the hands that we would have in our range. I'm like, is this a bet? Is this a check? Is this a bet? Is this a check? Right. And then I told them like, I don't care. Like it's a pure, like it, yeah, these yeah. are going to be pures. Yeah. Right. Um, so cause it's a practical splits. split. Right. Yeah. And I got them all right. It was like, wait, what? I was like, this is crazy. And then obviously they got a couple wrong that were like harder. It's like, okay, you should check race queen sometimes. Uh, but I'm heavily impressed with the way that, they under like they're understanding why certain hands should be bet versus not effectively like effectively they're very good at understanding like okay does this hand have too much showdown value to release its showdown value uh and if it does have to release its showdown value it probably has to be a punt off and they don't want to do that right then secondly they understand they're beginning to understand the path towards polarization Mm -hmm. which is like if we bet this hand on the flop and it goes this way like sizing should increase and we should be leaning towards like a narrower range of hands that's closer to polarization that's a lot like i I, i'm already like okay well like you guys are almost there in in a way like it's like well that's that's a lot of of like what you need and i'm just like a little fascinated and potentially this is just like how we structured the course that they've come along so far in like what seven lessons maybe yeah you know so so you think it, you think it's a structure thing or the or the yeah fact- I, I think it's the fact that we finally had enough time to structure it in a way that these first principles can really uh settle into people's minds so think about the, like the way that we developed the curriculum right we went in uh in kind of a pacing of you're gonna get a theory lecture and then you're gonna get a lab application of that lecture mm-hmm and then another theory lecture that's going to piggyback off the first, followed by another lab that will piggyback off of all three. Then we're going to do a, resu- a, re- a review session where we encapsulate the entire week and go over that with both practical examples of application or implementation, I should say, as well as 
future questions that you'll answer for the following week, right? Mm -hmm. So like we give them homework and yeah. worksheet that they're yeah. constantly working on and building out as the week goes on. Now, uh, Saturday rolls around, you have office hours, you get to ask whatever questions you want. This is just like free reign. Okay, great. So we do that week by week by week, which means that we get to fully address each chunk of the first principles, right? Mm -hmm. Week one is literally just like equity, EV, pot odds model. And then the application of that is preflop range construction. Mm. And we just get to spend, you know, 12 to 15 hours, or I guess 15 to 18 hours, strictly on those principles and nothing else. No other framework to get in the way and mess things up, right? Then we move to the second week and we just get into flop strategies, right? Mm -hmm. Flop betting strategies. And again, now we have the preflop solidified. So we just refer back to that as a constant. Right? It's no longer a variable that, that, that we're constantly having to flesh back out. It's here's the spot. Open, call. So it's a single raise pot, you're out of position. Or it's a three bet pot, you're out of position. You're in position. Whatever. You, we, we can just literally solidify those as constants and recognize that they have kind of uh, digested. Mm -hmm. They've had seven to ten days to digest all of that and say like, okay, I'm not cloudy any longer. We have to do that in three hours at the academy. Yeah, that's what I said yesterday. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's like, that's literally one one of our theory talks of the four or five that we get to have over a three-day period. So now like moving into flop strategies, we get to really dive into the minutia. You know, I spent an entire, my lesson went over two. I went four hours, you went four hours. We're mm -hmm. all supposed to go three, uh, where I'm just literally picking through and trying to explain to them the capitalization model, mm -hmm. where it's like, these are all the reasons to bet. And this is what it looks like to take a path to polarization. This is what it looks like to take a, a backwards path to realization, like where you you primarily put the focus on realizing your equity to the fullest, which is going to often lead to uh, smaller bets or checking strategies, yeah. right? And now they understand the why behind sizings, right? Which is so, so Critical. important. The second that they understand equity realization, equity capitalization, denial, and uh, polarization, and why each of those purposes get fit to a certain size. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, everything else becomes incredibly easy. Yeah. 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 I literally gave like five bet sizes. It was like, okay, like you have I, down bet, which is like now a controversial term. I guess like people don't want to use that anymore. But I didn't want to say I wanted to differentiate down bet and block bets as two yeah. different things. Yeah. So it was like, okay, you have down bet, protection bet, that of which look very similar, but they have different purposes. Right. So. Uh, bet size one was a protection bet. Mm -hmm. Bet size two was a down bet. Even though they're exact, they look exactly the same. The mental like click are very different because a protection bet rarely like goes into more bets, right, right. but a down bet does. Well, it's more so you're more so splitting the down bet range. Correct. Exactly. Like they're the same size, but they're no, no, no. But but like a protection bet is a part of down betting. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, and then the second, the third one was catch all. Then the fourth one was uh polar and then the fifth one was a block bet mm. right and i was like i was like when immediately the flop comes like i want you guys to pick a bet size and then the path through the bet size like mm -hmm. once you pick bet size two i want you i want like what the next bet size will be on these on these turns right and then if that happens what's the next bet size so like if you get the first bet size wrong like this whole thing could just fall apart you yeah. know and I think they were. And that's what's happening in real time. That's what we're noticing. Right. People are choosing half pot when they should be choosing a third. People are choosing three quarters pot whenever that's not a real size mm -hmm. option. 
And it just becomes a matter of like, okay, well, as long as you're doing this with too many hands, you're fucked. But I think that's why that first week was so crucial and why I'm so impressed with this week. Because if you understand EV and how it moves through, yeah, then you understand the bet size. Right. Right. So it's like you can't choose this bet size because your EV is this. Mm-hmm. So once you put those two things together, now you're getting these bet size wrongs. All we have to do is start inserting hands yeah. that fit that incentive. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay. I think what We're was gonna... what was uh, most impressive to me was conveying to them that equity is just a spectrum on the flop mm. and we don't have binary value in bluffs because uh, I think we've had a hard time teaching that principle that your hands are fluid and they'll be dynamically moving throughout your range. Basically, as your range narrows or yeah, as your range narrows, uh, each candidate is going to funnel into different portions yeah. of the range. So what may have started off as one of your highest EV hands or one of your highest equity hands is a better way of putting it, uh, could possibly deteriorate in accordance to the board runout. Right. And now it may move into a bluff catcher. And that's a hard concept for people to understand, right? Even going from preflop to flop, it's hard to get people to mentally understand that like, what was your best hand preflop with aces will deteriorate on a lot of boards. People get it when they have kings and the ace rips off. Yeah. Right, <laughs> They're right, like, that, oh, you guys get it now, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. It's not that good anymore. Exactly. <laughs> Probably exactly. want to start checking. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, that's funny. No, so yeah, I'm really impressed with this. I, I'm curious. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the next two weeks and I think it's going to be like very successful. But then I'm like, okay, do we do this again? Well, so it's one of those things where it's like, I have no answer because I want to do it again. I think it's a great product mm-hmm. and I think there's a huge need for it. But the issue is like, if you're not a professional poker player, who has 30 days to put three hours a day into it? Right, right. And it's a huge ask from our standpoint because when we're doing this, it's really hard to be working on any other content. Yeah, it's a lot. So it's like my best guess is this is something we could do once or twice a year. It's like an album release, you know? Sure. Yeah, it's like we out here like releasing albums. I think it's more so literally like a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think that that's a big element of it that makes it better learning, makes it a better learning model is they get the true uh, school-like education where they have homework, they have set times that they have to study every day, they're forced into group work, they're forced to actually converse back and forth with the professor and say like, I get this, I don't get this, here's the answer, this is not the answer, why is that the answer? All of that's being addressed in real time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that like, you know, all of us spent 12 years in our youth going through that process. And whether you liked school or hated school, you're familiar with school. Mm-hmm. So uh, leaving people to study, leaving people to their own devices to study, I think often fails. And this is like a streamlined approach to forcing people into better study habits. I like the fact of dropping the album. That sounded pretty nice. I was like thinking like, but it's not new. Like, what's my track? Like, but this wouldn't be new, right? We would be doing the same course what, over what, and over. I feel like you would be featured on one of my tracks. Like, sure, you would be like, I'll give you a little verse, like. I'll give you a little verse. Like what? What verse? You can't I, get the first verse. I'd be like Flavor Flav. Nah, that's too just hype. The hype guy. No, 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 not hype. You get an actual verse. Oh, you know, it's like right. you get like a section. But like, you know, I don't know. I, I might have to do the first verse because mm-hmm. like you know if you're really fire, yeah. like you go first because like in the club when they play the song and then the, and then Drake's Drake's verse is done, they just move on to the next. Right. Song. They yeah. don't even go to the second person. So yeah. like, I might be the first person. I don't know. We'll, we'll negotiate it. We'll mm-hmm. see what happens. Anyway, so 100 first dates. That's coming up. I'm going to have a new vlog series coming out. Uh, what, what is it? 
It'll be out, you know, summer series, you know, where you guys are really trying to get out there, trying to, like, meet the girl of your dreams. Berkey be out there trying to steal the girl of your dreams. And then uh, I think I think it's going to be a fun vlog, man. I don't like that idea at all. What? I thought we were doing a weight loss vlog. That's part of it. Oh, okay. You're gonna you're you're gonna you're gonna be like out there, you know, getting a hundred first dates at different gyms. You're gonna be real sad when COVID ends and I'm fucking shredded. Why would I be sad, man? I, I see that's the difference between you and I. Like you want me to fail all the time. It's just no, like, I don't. You're gonna be sad. No, I you're don't. gonna be miserable. I don't want you're you to gonna... fail. I just I think you're gonna be sad because you're built in excuse of I can't get in shape because no, of COVID. Man. Who said that? I'm eating. I'm eating well, man. I feel this is. Yeah, I feel great, working, man. man. I feel great, working. man. I feel great. I feel great. My blood pressure is good. But you ain't working. You think I'm not working? I think you're not working. You see, you see the difference between you and I. Mm -hmm. There's a little difference, right? Okay. It's like take a three mile walk like, while you're on I, the phone. I like to, count. I like to work when nobody's watching. You know, I, I don't need. Get I don't, out of I don't here. need. I don't need. It. I'm like Rocky, man. You know, like nobody. Nobody watching. needs the shine more than look, you. Look, just turn off the lights, and I'm just like, oh shit, here we go. You couldn't be any more backward. No one so, needs man. the shine more than you. Nah. I don't give a shit nah, if anybody man. ever sees. You know how much work I've put in behind closed doors. Yeah, I saw your videos on Instagram. Man, yeah, because that was part of the doing, gig. What was it like? This thing that you did. I could do it too. No, man. you look can't. At that. Look, at that. look at that. I could do it too. You're lucky this mic is here, bro. You're lucky this mic is here. You're lucky this mic is here. That and was I. The the Instagram was part of the gig. He I feel offered you, man. to train me in order to get his name out there, and I appreciate that. Because you're a big time, big bet, Berkey. You know. Don't don't be. Nah, I get you, man. This on me, man. It's not on you. I'm just saying. I like to work in. I like to work in the dark, man. I like. That's, you know why? Producers keeps going like this, man. You know why? You know why you like to work in the dark? Go ahead, bro. That's a nice place for uh, nobody to hold you accountable. That's not true, man. You, you know put in sixty percent in the dark; it's as good as putting in a hundred. Nah, man. I, I, I don't. I don't think so, man. I don't think so, man. The only thing I do in the light is, is I. I don't even want to talk anymore, man. I don't want to get it. Why don't you I, talk to us about these long walks you've been having with a uh, with a little bitty on the phone? Nah, man, I do the walks and I'm like, yeah, this is a long walk. And I try to, you know, I try to play my roles, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to be a good friend. I want to be a good, a good mentor to my students. I want to be a, a good owner. So like the walk allows me to bring certain things <laughs> up that might be falling. What, man? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, like right now, right like now, you're, like your like your phone sex game. No, like I'm being. No, you step up that phone sex game. <laughs> Listen, right now I'm being a good owner. Right, 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 right Like right. be a good yeah, owner. Sure. You know, put the name brand out there, host a show. No, nah, but like, tell me about this phone sex game. Then after that, I'm like, okay, how am I doing in my physical life? Like, how am I? Like, how am I emotionally and physically? And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. well, a walk handles some physical, handles a little bit of mental because you get to clear your mind. And then if I'm like, oh, I'm kind of lacking in like my friendship uh, department. Then I'm like, oh, let me hit this person How many up. of these friends during this walk have a penis? Why are you so sexist though? <laughs> like, like, why do they have to have a penis for them to be your friend? Like, they, you I just, just see the goddamn smile on your face when you walk out the door and return an hour and a half later. And I know that that call runtime says 90 minutes. It's not three different people. It could be three different people. Uh, and also funny. like, why can't, why can't, I think anyone can can provide happiness to you. It doesn't have to be male or female. <laughs> don't be, like, what are you don't talking about? Philosophical why why, are, you, now, why are you saying like? I just want to know 
who you're, you're the one with the hundred first dates, bro, man. That was a decade ago. Get over it. I want to know. You're trying to live vicariously, not yeah. through me, and say like, yeah. "Oh, you should do a hundred first dates too." Yeah, I want to know who all who you're being a thirst trap for. I want to know who you're uh, licking the lips like LL Cool J for. You know, Poppy in the house. I feel you, man. I understand. I, 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 I don't even know what to say. You're just like. Putting me on the spot. Yeah, guys, you don't like that, dude. No, no, no. I think it's fine. But like, uh-huh. you know, I can't. I think that whether anyone is out there and wants to call me, I go on walks every day. <laughs> if you want to call me, if you're those man, DMs are if open. You, if you're Christian's not on Tinder, but if you give him a follow, slide <laughs> in those DMs, no, give no. him a phone number. You might get a call next day. Next time he hits. And I think it's walks. fine if it's male or female. It yeah, doesn't have yeah. to be. That's yeah, what, that's right. the main purpose. All of what right, I'm you heard to it, dudes. Slide in that DM. Give him your phone number. Maybe Christian will hit you up. Give you a little dating advice. Two hundred fifty dollars an hour. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> doesn't matter. Male or female. Two hundred fifty dollars an hour. When are you starting that fans only account? Those girls make piles, man. I saw, dude. I saw, I saw something on Twitter the other day where it was like, oh, I don't have a real like one of the only fans girls. Yeah, like yeah. somebody retweeted because I don't follow those chicks. Here. Sure, but sure, sure. but anyway, uh, somebody retweeted and it was like the girl was like, oh, this. Like this chick said, like I didn't have I didn't have a real job, and she showed her like subscriber count, like how much she made eighty thousand a month. Uh, no, like for the year. Oh, but like that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. you gotta do some unscrupulous acts though for eighty k. Eighty thousand. I mean, you know, you should start taking your shirt off in this fucking vlog. We might make eighty thousand. We're gonna lose subscribers. So Patreon. You heard? <laughs> I would start. We'll start a Patreon next. Next. That that might be my Patreon thing. It's like if you donate to us. You know, support the vlog. I'll, I'll be like fucking. What's this guy that sends out a text every day? Gary Vitti, man. I'll be like Gary Vitti out there in, the, in my walks. Be like, yo, what's up? How you doing today? Like, you doing all right? Stay hard. Hang up. <laughs> I'm I'm all for that. As long as I'm not making the phone calls, like you're taking this on. Yeah, we'll start a Patreon account for you to make a three minute phone call to everybody who donates. Booked. All right, cool. Booked. This is the best thing you've ever done for the company. <laughs> Booked. All right. Two hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> Nah, we'll I'll, we'll set it up. I'm actually pretty curious. Like, if we set up a Patreon account, I will call every single person on that Patreon account at least once every what? Once a week? I don't know. Is it every day? I don't know, man. I don't know. We'll You're have to think about books, it. You're asking a check. We'll see how much those that that cash those checks come. <laughs> <laughs> then then I'll tell you what we're cashing, and then I'll see what my ass can cash. All right. All right. All right. Anyway, I I hope you all enjoyed episode number 45 of the Vlogcast. Subscribe like our channel we're trying to grow trying to catch up to people that might have retired may or may or not be coming back i have no idea but we'll be here the realest fucking vlogcast in the building Cut.